This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we are joining you here live on SiriusXM Channel 111 on Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And we are replayed throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Sandy, this is a fun time. Um, It's our theme show. You know, we are here towards the end of April, but, you know, guess what's next month? It's gonna be May. (laughs) It's, it is going to be the month of May, but actually, um, you're a new mother. I am. And guess what's in May? Mother's Day. Mother's Day. And so our theme today is actually going to be talking about, um, you know, we, we have a lot of gender shows, mm-hmm. but this is going to take around, you know, workplace culture and how are we being supportive, not only of, of parents and mm-hmm. how that might play a role, but, you know, how are we creating cultures that drive impact um, through the business case, right, your organization, and then also what are you, how are you having an impact? Yeah, we talk a lot about external impact that companies have, corporate social responsibility efforts, impact investing efforts, but there are employees at these organizations. And so this, this show and the segment sort of takes a look into the organizations to say, how are you creating positive social impact within your own you know, co- company, organization, whatever? Exactly. And today we have some powerful players oh, yeah. from across sectors that'll be helping us dig into this conversation. And I do want to jump, just jump right into our first guest because I don't know if we've ever had someone as, as such a power hitter um, as our first guest. We have Sue Desmond Hellman, who is the chief executive officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That is probably a household name to most of our listeners. Uh, welcome to the show, Sue. Thank you. It's nice to join you guys. Thank you so much. Um, you know, like I said, overall, that this is probably, you know, a household name, Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation. It's the largest private foundation in the world. Um, but it's an organization that you just joined three years ago. Um, and I think both in terms of their financial resources, but human capital resources, um, you have such an opportunity to have massive potential impact. How do you, you know, what are you doing at the Gates Foundation and how as a, I mean, you're no longer so new, but when you were new, how do you really think about what are the strategic priorities as a new leader in this massive, important organization? Well, the first thing that that I did when I came to the foundation is what I think any leader does uh, at the start is lots and lots of listening and learning. Um, and the the good news for me as a leader, because I'm a physician and a scientist by background, but I was in the private sector and in, in biotechnology and then in academia. So this really was my first introduction to the not-for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have the kind of tools that a lot of your listeners probably rely on, which is things like earnings per share, stock options, bonuses. You know, these are are natural tools to think about how you drive and motivate, uh, reward, all of those other things. But the good news for me in listening hard is there was a couple things that that the not-for-profit sector shares with the for-profit sector and academia, and that is that people who are employed and coming here for work are talented and they have choices. And so right away I came back to a saying that that I started talking about 15 years ago, and that is everyone deserves a great manager. 
Um, and for me, no matter if it's the not-for-profit sector and you're near the end of your career and you're here for two years, or if you're uh, just starting your career and you've been here for 10 years, uh, my dream was and is that, that those years and the years that you're at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are ones that when you're in your rocking chair someday, you reminisce were some of the best, most productive, most meaningful years of my life. Um, and that takes at, at its heart and soul, like every other place I've been, that you know what you're signed up for and that you can you can actually do your best work and that the organization brings out the best in you. And I think that's an inspiring vision, Sue. And I'm um you know, with the operational hat on thinking, you come in, you listen, you have this vision for, you know, a transformative, powerful, healthy, productive work environment for all of your employees with great managers. What do you measure to start to assess where the organization is and to be able to benchmark and analyze along the way how you're doing against those goals? Well, we've um, started to use uh, an employee survey, and you know that there is such a thing as survey fatigue. So I'm always really oh, we know <laughs> as academics, we are <laughs> very familiar. And Sue, how big so, is the Gates Foundation from a you know a personnel perspective, so people can get a sense of this, this employee survey who it's going to? Yeah, so we have uh, about 1,500 full-time employees, um, and uh, they're all over the world. Um, so we have a very diverse uh, workforce, not, not just as people think in a U.S. fashion, but a geographically diverse workforce. With em- Those 1,500 employees may be in Seattle, our headquarters, Washington, D.C., London, uh, New Delhi, India, Beijing, China, uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, South Africa. Wow. Um, and so we are we are global. We have a big U.S. program as well. And so it, it's a, 50, a workforce of 1,500, but a super special workforce in terms of its its diversity, its variety of backgrounds. And so um, the employee survey is helpful, but it's also um, extremely important to think about cultural differences, to think about differences in in employee law uh, and regulation, and any global organization deals with this. Um, and, and frankly, with the kind of global work we do and the passion our employees bring to it, um, what is extraordinary beyond the, the global nature of our work in some of the hardest places to work in the world is is the toll it takes on people who work in global organizations. Um, I, I've told people that my husband actually worked at the foundation. My husband's an HIV uh, uh, specialist, a physician, and when he worked here um, uh, about a decade ago now, I saw the toll it took on him to be such a road warrior, mm-hmm. um, and it really reminded me of something I talk to employees all the time here, which is about self-care, and, uh, you know, as physician, we used to say, when you run down to the emergency room, take your own pulse first. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I say that to employees, look, if you, if you don't come to work as your best self, if you're not filled with energy, how can you have the kind of compassion we should bring to the causes we care about, which are, are really those things that differentially affect the poor and things that drive inequity in the world. So I guess my question for you then is, you know, I think we can assume that when people come to work, they're engaged, a company has a great culture, that that typically can drive the bottom line. You know, that increases profits and productivity. 
when we're talking about social impact, I mean, is do you think that by having engaged employees, you have you therefore have more impact? Is that sort of the philosophy behind the the business case for this at the Gates Foundation? I am extremely confident that that does translate. That the same work that demonstrates that if you have a great culture. Uh, that you uh, increase earnings per share, that your growth rate's higher, and that your shareholders are happy, that that same cultural tenant means that fewer people will be poor. More uh, U.S. students will be able to graduate from high school and be college or career ready. Um, They'll be able to get a diploma (laughs) from college. um, uh, That we will eradicate polio. uh, That with partners, because we always work uh, with partners, that we we will change uh, hunger and uh, improve nutrition and improve not just people's physical well-being, but their ability to learn and thrive. Um, and I am confident that just as with people who have Wall Street that they're accountable to, when we're accountable to the world and the globe um, about spending this uh, um, amazing capital and this amazing generosity that's behind the foundation, we'll have a bigger impact. Well, and so I guess for me, what are types of things that you might have identified specifically as an an incoming leader? And how did you sort of prioritize where you wanted to focus if you found some issues that you wanted to improve? Well, let me give you um, two examples that I think might bring to life the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, One is something that I know every organization that that defines itself with terms like divisions struggles with. And that is, how do we think about the foundation as a whole? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we think about a one foundation kind of goal as compared to silos or or more horizontal thinking, less vertical thinking? Sure. Um, it, it, my background in, in product development um, and, and portfolio management has helped me a lot in thinking about this. And, and one of the things that I've in, encouraged the organization to hold ourselves accountable for as 1,500 people and to do this together with our, our co-chairs, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, how are we thinking about literally using every penny of the foundation's money to its highest and best use in service of solving inequity? Um, so it, the, we, uh, the employee survey I, I mentioned, our biggest survey jump item last year to this year was in the the item saying we make the success of the whole foundation, not just our respective programs, a priority. So we have actually moved the needle on what we're calling collective success. And, you know, the foundation is extremely inspiring in what it does. But if someone comes to work here, it's not uncommon. They've had an entire career trying to improve uh, early education or working on malaria or being an expert on water sanitation and hygiene. So they can go deep as a technical expert, and the collective success requires for us to do enough in terms of our decision-making and how we invest for them to see the whole and how they fit in with the whole. Um, And so I'm really pleased to see that kind of progress because I think managing the portfolio and thinking of the both the people and the resources as precious in service of of the you know we have this tagline that's extremely inspiring all lives have equal value so it may be that on one year we're really pushing hard on 
um, uh, on one project or another. It may be polio this year that we have specific opportunities. Next year, family planning may have a great opportunity. But that as a as a member of of uh, the foundation, as a, as a member of staff, you really see both how your work contributes and you're proud and, and pleased to be part of the whole. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School, and we are joined with Sue Desmond-Hellman, who's the chief executive officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Sue, we're talking about all of the improvements and opportunities you had to build on the already incredible momentum at the Gates Foundation around their people. Do, you know, how, how, do you make, how do you help good people do their best work? And so one of the things that I think is so powerful about having you on today is that the Gates Foundation is sort of that like a beacon. It is, as Nick said, a household name. It is often what other nonprofits look to as a standard of excellence and attempt to emulate. What, as we think about our listeners who might be at smaller foundations, at you know even social enterprises that are you know three, four, five person staffs and they're growing, what are some of those big lessons that you would? impart from your experience, you know, trying to build this best-in-class organization to those that are building theirs? Well, uh, um, I'll tell you one of the things that, that I have learned, and I think this is this is something where we're on a learning journey. I, I don't think that we, um, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't purport to be an expert on this, but anybody who's setting up a, an enterprise where they're thinking in terms of social justice or or making a difference in the not-for-profit sector, um, knows that that the people they will attract and retain have a, a bigger vision for what how they want to make a difference in the world. And so I, I want to tell you about our parental leave program because one of the things all of us in our foundation are so inspired by is one of our co-chairs, Melinda Gates, and her passion around family planning, the importance of paid family leave, and and really how women uh, can thrive. Um, no matter where they are in the world. And so Melinda's wisdom and vision on this um, pushed us at the foundation to ask ourselves, are we actually walking the talk? Um, and we didn't feel we were. And what so, was your what was leave um, previously? What did it look so, like before the shift? So the the leave was a much more, um, I think it was like 12 weeks or something like okay. that. It was a much more traditional leave policy. Standard FMLA. Yeah, we had legal. a standard one. Um, and we decided that we would be bold. Um, and so uh, we said we're going to do 52 weeks of paid family leave. Um, and it's not maternal leave. It's moms and dads. And um, we, <laughs> we actually said, me applauding we're, in the studio. We're going to do this, um, and we're not really sure how, but we'll just do it. So as of the end of March this year, 175 employees, 126 moms, and 49 dads have taken leave or have have put in place plans to take leave in our system since we began the program in January 2016. 79% of women and 41% of men take the full 12 months. And the average uh, duration is 11 months for women and seven and a half months for men. That's incredible. It's, it's amazing, actually. And, and I have to say that what you don't get from those numbers is what really puts a smile on my face, which is starting to see the first employees who were the early adopters 
um, come back after their year off. Yeah. How did there you is... how did you support them? Because I think this is a big piece. We're seeing in the transition coming back. Uh, well, yeah. So we're seeing, I guess, the policies change, but the practice mm-hmm. is often a necessary component, right? So if exactly. I was getting side eye from my boss every time I went to go pump. You know, it would be a very different experience, even if they said, oh, there are lactation rooms and we're breastfeeding friendly organization. If you're yeah. not culturally supported on a day to day basis, the policies might as well not exist. Right. Yeah. So what did you yeah. do to help those early adopters take advantage of this opportunity, come back seamlessly? Because how that goes really does influence that yeah. 70 and 40 percent of folks to say, I could see myself doing this and be successful. Well, early we learned um, from managers and employees that we needed to put in place a much clearer policy and process for how to temporarily fill the roles of employees on leave. Huge question. It's a giant scramble, and we actually had to make resources available. So at some point, you had to be able to to um, to fill that slot, so that you, you know, our employees are so passionate, and and moms and dads don't want to leave anyone in the lurch. Oh, so, sure, so sure, yeah. The, the manager favor, who has to deal with a twelve month leave is exactly, in no easy position. Massive, yeah, massive. So we did learn that we needed more support for onboarding returning parents. That that wasn't just a gimme. That it, everything from lactation to what's it going to be like having been gone for a year. Mm -hmm. And so we're putting those things in place now. And part of this is asking, because, you know, 175 employees, it starts to become something we can have a learning set. Mm -hmm. So we're just doing that learning now. But we know we need um, uh, some process about onboarding. And and the one thing I I really want to make sure that you guys get is, so there's some unintended consequences that we need to fix, like how, how to support managers, how to, how to re-onboard people who took leave. But there's an upside that, that I want to celebrate because a 1,500-person um, foundation that doesn't have aspirations to grow our staff, we, uh, we, we don't want to get big. That's not a foundation's goal to get big. We want to be effective, not big. Um, we need career opportunities for staff. People want, like every organization, to have upward momentum, mm-hmm. to have the opportunity to learn and grow. So we've used the parental leave in a surprisingly great way for career opportunities for people to learn new things and flex if they backfill. And we've celebrated, and you know, in an organization of 1,500 people, a part of that is storytelling. And so um, we're starting to make sure that and, and I can tell you just as a CEO, I see people who weren't as visible to me in the org who are stepping in during a, a um, family leave where where people say, oh, the parental leave program allowed them to try this out. I want you to meet Jane or John or somebody who's doing that. And that's pretty neat. You know, that is actually a really nice consequence. So we're trying to move from problem solving. Okay, how do you backfill? How mm-hmm. do you do this? Because really, as an organization, we're thrilled for families to thrive. We think our our staff are the best asset of the foundation. And so both celebrating that and making sure that we're true to uh, the tenant, that if we're going to walk the walk, those families should thrive and we should be a great organization and allow people to grow and thrive as a result of managers figuring out how to manage this and people backfilling, um, deriving an upward momentum for their career as a result. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put something else in your ear to look for because I recently took maternity leave, and and one thing for me, it finally forced me to learn to delegate. Like I could have said till I was blue in the face, "Oh, I need to get better at delegating," and put it on my quarterly goals every you know three months. 
But until I had to walk away for three months and know that I literally might not be able to work, it, that's what it really took career-wise for me to actually be able to delegate. And now I love it. <laughs> now I'm a much I more effective employee. So, so learning how to delegate is great. The, the other thing, especially in a, a, you know, we're about 17 years old as a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, it, it, it uh, forces you to ask um, uh, about what that employee is accountable for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a new organization, being really clear about roles and responsibilities sounds boring and like business process and bureaucracy, but but it does sharpen the mind if you have to fill in for what somebody does that you can't live without. Yeah. (laughs) And, Sue, you know, it sounds like, you know, you came in as a leader and said, you know, this is an issue that I want to address. And I I can actually – I hear the delighted uh, sound (laughs) in your voice. And, you know, I'm sort of curious to know – what are some other things, maybe even on the program side, that you viewed also needed review and in terms of a strategic perspective for the foundation outside of sort of the human resources practices? Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, if you make the foundation a great place to work, all else follows. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the big thing. But in the end, um, like every organization, we will be measured. And, you know, I like history. So I often think history will look back at this largest private foundation and say, what did we get done? Mm-hmm. And so we track macro uh, um uh, economic indicators. So Bill and Melinda put out an annual letter, and they've talked about since 1990, 122 million kids have been saved from a lot of global health interventions. Yeah, and just that letter is a best practice and sort of like sharing knowledge and transparency. It's fantastic. So so they have been great at this. More, 300 million more women have access to, to contraception. The percent of people in poverty has been cut in half since 1990. Bill and Melinda are awesome in their annual letters and in their advocacy at the global measurement of how, how the not-for-profit sector is doing in this kind of work. Here's what we've needed to do at the foundation. So go back from all those big global aspirations and the wonderful aspects of their letter. Let's say I'm in the um, financial services for the poor, uh, the mobile money and digital financial inclusion uh, um, uh, project team. What, What do I do to contribute to this decline in poverty? Well, we actually have for that team a metric by 2030, 80% of adults worldwide and 60% of adults living on less than $2 a day can use a digital account to access at least one financial service beyond payments. Now, that's a, that sounds like a corporate goal to me. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very um, specific uh, smart goal, as we used to call them. It's <laughs> measurable. And the team can track their progress and break that down into between now and 2030. What do we need to achieve either in terms of advocacy or inventing or tech, technology breakthroughs or, or any of the aspects of their theory of change. And so the, the use of metrics is a really clear standard language that any great organization uses so that you can celebrate success. You can, you can work on uh, things that you're, you're not happy about to improve them. And so I think that's another thing that our foundation is doing better and more of in service of being a great place to work and a place that makes a difference is really clear metrics for success that at the level of, of one person, somebody who works at the foundation, they can see how their contribution makes progress along that journey. 
that I mean, it really is fantastic to hear that. And we we obviously here at Wharton are huge fans of, of metrics and better understanding our you know effective effectiveness in our programs. Um, and I'm sort of curious to know a little more around the tool set that you use to be able to achieve those goals. So, you know, recently in the news, your a peer organization, the Ford Foundation, also mentioned, you know, that they're going in with a billion dollars over 10 years in their endow- investing in their endowment for impact. Um, and then, of course, program related investments and impact investing is just a big part of what we do here at Wharton as well. And I'm just curious to know, have you expanded the toolkit in, in terms of how you deploy capital to achieve your impact goals? Actually, it's it's quite amazing. So there's a there's a whole category of of uh, areas in the foundation that we call market failures. So a market failure, uh, Ebola is a classic market failure, a very uncommon disease that that has differentially affected the poor. And so those are the kind of things that we have put together a very specific toolkit uh, in our program-related investment group. So that toolkit includes things like tiered pricing. Um, Volume guarantees is a tried-and-true one of our favorite tools is is volume guarantees. Um, And and we've actually been very aggressive in outreach. In fact, I've interviewed many um, uh, corporate partners, business development folks, and, and folks in private industry particularly in the global health space, but this extends beyond that to to agriculture, nutrition, other areas the foundation's working on, and, and asking people, what would make you take this project out of your corporate social responsibility and put it on your P&L? How can you make a healthy business and serve the poor? And that's a compelling um, question because we're not asking people to do this out of the goodness of their heart. The, the areas of the world that are growing um, are, are areas that often are emerging from low income to middle income and, and beyond. And so our value proposition to companies is, look, help us solve these tough problems and we'll think about models on how you can do this and not just do it because you have a heart, which is terrific and wonderful, worth celebrating, um, but but is there a business model that's sustainable that brings all the passion and energy and pace of private industry to the problems we're trying to solve? Yeah, that's so great. And I, you know, I'm reminded of some work that we did with the Rockefeller Foundation on innovative finance, and we looked at um, the what I think they were calling them advanced market commitments or these volume guarantees that you described, mm-hmm. um, where you know. It was sort of like we're, we're going to upfront. Um, we're going to agree on a price upfront. We're going to purchase this at this level, at this price, um, at this volume. But then, you know, the the demand is there so that it can sustain that price over time. And I also just want to bring up one other thing. I was surprisingly at a at a roundtable just a couple of weeks ago with some of the heads of corporate responsibility and sustainability in, in big pharma. And this is exactly on their mind, um, you know, taking it from just sort of this niche philanthropy within the within the corporation and saying this is there's a real business case because our margins mm-hmm. are being squeezed here in the U.S. or Western Europe. And these are market opportunities Huge for us. And so market opportunities. it sounds really interesting to hear that the Gates Foundation is also helping spur some of this market activity. Well, I do think that one of the things that is worth celebrating, um, and I certainly came into a foundation that was oriented this way, but I I think it's worth emphasizing the not-for-profit sector in many ways historically has been suspicious of capitalism. Um, And and I understand that there's, you know, in every sector I've worked in, and I've worked in many, there are people who you don't admire. Um, 
it, our foundation has always felt like capitalism has is a powerful force, that capitalism is sustainable, that capitalism gets things done with pace and energy, that capitalism attracts talent. And so for us, we're passionate about making a difference for the poor. We're passionate about people having healthy, productive lives. So why would we exclude people who work in private industry? I mean, once you say it like that, of course you would want to include private industry and honor that we're not-for-profit, that we have tax rules we follow, and that we, we follow all the rules and the guidelines, and that's the charitable intent part of how we think about working with private industry. And so I actually think one of the, the areas of the foundation that is under-recognized is our legal group. So our legal group has done incredible problem-solving with our program-related investments group on how can we honor all the rules that govern the way that our foundation, which is a foundation, uh, um, not an investment entity, how can we honor all those tax laws and the charitable intent and serve the poor in working with private industry. So the charitable intent and, and all of the things that we include, um, whether it's a volume guarantee or, or any other form of program-related investment, it, it, we're innovating using, using our staff in legal and finance and, and business, which is actually really fun to see that kind of innovation and I think very inspiring to me. Sue, it sounds like, I mean, I... <laughs> Of course, maybe one day I aspire to be the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But gosh, it sounds like a daunting task. Um, you know, you're looking inward at, you know, your culture and your employees. You're looking at your programs and then you're really looking at global markets and how to have an impact. So it sounds like a lot. Where are you focused moving and, and how do you see the foundation's role in the next 10 years evolving? Well, the, I, I think it's important to um, it, it's easy to feel overwhelmed when you are tackling problems, U.S. education, you know, poverty, uh, malaria, HIV, TB, these are daunting problems. I would give you two bits of good news. One is, as CEO, in the end, the more that I'm committed to making the foundation a great place to work, it's the talented staff of the foundation that, that drive the agenda. And we're so fortunate to have the generosity of Bill and Melinda and Warren and the kind of passion and talent our staff bring to bear. But the second thing is they, we have amazing partners. So none of this we do on our own. We're not an operating foundation. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not out there in the field with mm -hmm. a, a vaccine in my hand. So the incredible partners that we are privileged to work with, whether it's a company, as I mentioned, the World Health Organization, UN agencies, governments are critical partners for us. Governments have a plan for the health and well-being of their population, and sovereign governments are critical uh, thought partners and, and key partners for us in all of our work. So I think it's less – I'm optimistic based on, on the sense that, that the commitment I have to this cause is to make sure that the foundation is a great place and makes a difference in the world, together with all the partners who are driving this agenda. And we're seeing progress. I think the progress is the best evidence that this is important, meaningful work, and we'll get better at it. You know, we've made mistakes, and we'll we'll get better at it. And and uh, you need a lot of humility for this work, and and some patience, although we're often impatient. Um, but it's it's the kind of passion, and I, I just want to, because you're at a university, I want to make a shout out to the, this generation of students. This generation of students 
even more than when I was in school, wants to make a difference in the world. Absolutely. And for so sure. that, that is so inspiring to me that I, I don't just think of our current staff. I think of our future staff. And I think the kind of things that you guys are talking about, and I'm really glad you have a, a radio program on this, um, you know, that's that's my pipeline for future talent you're working on, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and we'll give a shout-out right back to Gates. You guys are one of the um, on-campus recruiting. You know, you guys come on campus to recruit from our Wharton MBAs, which is fantastic because there's such a huge appetite for roles in the social impact space. Um, and so it's great to see, you know, organizations at that professional level sort of coming in um, to look at the talent pipeline here. Absolutely. Sue, this has been really fun. Time flies. Um, And of course, we should have you on again because there are a million other topics we can discuss. But we have been speaking with Sue Desmond-Hellman, who is the chief executive officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thank you so much for joining the program. We're going to take a short break. Stick with us. This has been Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.